nearly 50, nearly 50 years ago, the Beatles um, released a song. Hello? Let's keep talking here. Can you hear me? No? Hello? There we go. Good morning. Um, nearly 50 years ago, the Beatles uh, released a song called All You Need Is Love. Uh, it became one of their more popular songs, and they played the song for the first time on a, a television show. It's called the, the Our World Project, and uh, the, it was the first uh, worldwide television special broadcast in 24 countries. Uh, the band chose to play this particular song as opposed to one of their other hits because they felt a global audience would easily understand its simple message. The song was an instant success. It immediately hit number one on the charts. Uh, and if you've heard this song before, you know it's, it's uh, highly repetitive. And the, this, basically the song says, love is all you need. Uh, well, like countless other pop songs throughout the years, the lyrics to All You Need Is Love, uh, it, they, they demonstrate really some of the common tendencies that we have when it comes to love. Some of the common ways we tend to think about and approach uh, love, in particular uh, romantic love. Uh, the first of these tendencies is this. Uh, we have a tendency to idealize love. We idealize love. A- in our culture, love, and in particular, again, romantic love, is, is one of our highest ideals. Uh, you just take a look at our popular culture of uh, books and music and movies and television shows. It, just a, a casual look at that will reveal that we we hold love up as one of our cardinal virtues, almost above any other virtue uh, in our culture today. So this would be kind of like the Hollywood version of love, okay? Uh, this would be the, the whole, like, like you complete me uh, idea of love, right? Uh, it's, this, it's this idea that if I could just find that one relationship in my life, then everything else will fall into place. Everything else will be perfect if I just find, you know, the one. And so we talk about romantic love. We talk about these relationships in, in these terms. We talk about what it means to find our soulmate, right? Uh, we talk, again, like the question is, is he or she the one? Uh, and, and every, you know, like, like romantic story or movie or whatever, the, the, whole, the whole thing is like geared toward getting you to the point where they live happily ever after. You know, like any romantic comedy, any Hallmark movie you've ever seen, uh, for us guys, typically it's like, you've, hey, fast forward, uh, you know, the next 90 minutes of my life and I can go ahead and tell you how it ends. They're going to end up together, right? So can we just not watch this movie. That would be a, kind of our argument. But this is the, the idea of like romantic love, this, this you complete me kind of love where we idealize this, this sort of concept. And to be fair, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, right? I mean, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that just like on the surface because, because we, we are wired to receive love. We are wired as, as beings who are created in the image of God, and Scripture says that God is love. The New Testament tells us that. So our God is a God of love, and he makes us in his image. So that means one of the, the ways we bear his image is that we, we are just created to love and to receive love in return. So, so just on the surface, idealizing love is not necessarily a bad thing. But in a culture like ours, 
where love is, and romantic love in particular, is held up as one of the primary, you know, virtues, it's a short distance from idealizing love to getting to this place where we idolize love. And that's kind of the idea here, like, you know, love is, is all you need if you just, again, have love in your life. Nothing else really matters. Uh, when we begin to idolize love, just like any other thing that we might idolize, we recognize this is a far more serious problem, right? Uh, when we idolize love, what we're doing there is we're looking to a human relationship for the kind of meaning and significance that we should ultimately only derive from our relationship with God. Now, none of us would, would, would say, you know, necessarily that we are, are worshiping the person we're in relationship with, uh, in, uh, the, the relationship that we have with somebody. We wouldn't say that we're, like, putting them up on this pedestal and, like, bowing down before them like they're a golden calf or whatever. But, but again, like, we, we can do this very, very easily in our culture because we make the person that we're in relationship with such an ultimate part of our lives, I guess this would be a move away from like the you complete me, you know, romantic version of idealized love. So instead of like you complete me, when we idolize love, what we've, what we've done is instead we've moved away from you complete me and we're saying instead you define me. You see the difference? I say, you know, someone completes this void in my life and I just love you so much. I'm so thankful for our relationship. You know, that's one thing. But to go from there to say, like, I derive my identity from this relationship above all else. If that's where we are, then we've just created a counterfeit God. We've taken the person that we love and we've turned that into a device where Satan can run rampant. According to the Bible, our primary identity is, again, as people who are created in the image and likeness of God. That means you are intrinsically important and valuable as a creation of God in and of yourself. Not defined by a relationship with anybody else. No husband, no wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, nobody. This is what happens when we idolize love. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Timothy Keller writes, We know a good thing has become a counterfeit God when its demands on you exceed the proper boundaries. And I think he's on to something. When a good thing in your life begins to exceed its proper boundaries, that's where a counterfeit God can begin to, to pop up. Uh, for many in our culture, it's the pursuit of love, which is, again, a good thing in and of itself. But when that becomes ultimate, when it assumes a place of ultimate importance in our hearts and in our lives, we've just created a counterfeit God. Keller goes on to tell a story about a woman that he knows who, this is his language, he says, she's so in love with love right? You, you understand that? Like, she's in love with the idea of love. She's in love with the idea of being bound up in this, like, great uh, romance. So people talk about this all the time. It's like the, the popular kind of way of saying it's like, oh, I'm a hopeless romantic, you know? Like, she's so in love with that image of self, right? I don't even know what that means, hopeless romantic, but, you know, she's so bound up in that image of, like, who she is, okay? And he says that she would, she would endure these relationships with men that were just abusive, these relationships were harmful for her. And the reason she would do that is because she was so in love with love. Because she had moved away from you complete me and instead was living in this realm where it was not you complete me, but it's you define me. She couldn't define herself apart from a relationship with a man. And so because of that, she was willing to endure some really toxic, really unhealthy relationships because that's how she derived her meaning and her value. Apart from a relationship with a man, she didn't know who she was. 
And I wonder how many of us in our culture, this counterfeit God wreaks havoc in our lives as well. So the Bible warns us against the danger of any kind of idolatry. But in particular, we have an example. We have an example in Scripture when it comes to creating a counterfeit God out of, out of love and romance. And you find that in Genesis chapter 29. And it's the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. If you want to go ahead and get there in your Bibles, you, know, you, you can spend the next second or two doing that. Uh, we're going to read here in Genesis 29. This is where we're going to camp out the next, uh, the, the, the next few minutes. And let's hear what God has to say to us in this, this narrative that we find in Genesis 29. Uh, the backstory while you're, you're kind of getting there. So last week we talked about Abraham and Isaac. Uh, God has this, this call on Abraham's life. He says, I'm going to use you to bless the nations. And so Abraham and Sarah, they have a son, Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah, they have two sons. They have Jacob and Esau. And Esau is the favorite son of his dad, Isaac. Esau's the outdoorsman. Uh, uh, Isaac just loves Esau. But it says that Jacob is the favored son of his mother, Rebekah. Well, as the story goes, Jacob swindles uh, the birthright away. He deceives his father into getting the blessing that was uh, intended for Esau. And so Esau, Jacob's twin brother, is enraged. He wants to kill him. And so what Isaac and Rebekah do is they get together and they say, hey, in order to preserve Jacob's life, we need to get him out of here. So they send him away. They send him to Rebekah's brother. So this would be Jacob's uncle, and his name is Laban. And so Jacob and Laban in Genesis 29, in the verse we're going to read, they're having this conversation about the working relationship they're going to share. Jacob is going to work for his uncle Laban. We're going to pick this up in verse 16 of Genesis 29, and let's see here what God's word says. Now Laban had two daughters, and the name of the older was Leah, the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, we'll come back to that in just a minute, but it says Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel, and he said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man, stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Let's pause right there for a second. So there is this contrast between these two sisters. Contrast between Leah and Rachel. It says again that Leah had weak eyes, and Hebrew scholars look at that, and and they're not exactly sure what that means. It seems as if it's kind of like a um, a figure of speech in the ancient world that we don't, we're not really familiar with, but context clues here help us. So it says Leah has weak eyes, and that is contrasted with Rachel, who is beautiful. It says, it says she's lovely in form, and she is beautiful. So that leads Hebrew scholars to think that, that this reference to Leah having weak eyes, it's, it's in reference to some sort of blemish, some sort of like physical physical issue that leads her to being less than attractive. Uh, they, they think maybe, we don't know for sure, but maybe she has an issue with her eyes. Uh, some Hebrew scholars, some think that you know, she's, she's cross-eyed. Uh, some Hebrew scholars think, like literally, she, it's, it's referring to her, she's literally unsightly. It hurts your eyes to look at her. And here's this, this, this woman, Leah, who who lives in the shadow as the older sister. She lives in the shadow of her beauty queen, younger sister. All right? So that's the family dynamic between those two. 
And Jacob, it says in the Bible, he is immediately smitten with Rachel. Verse 18 that we just read, he was in love with her. But there are some clues here that that tell us that Jacob might be kind of blurring those lines between idealizing love. There might be this blurred place in his heart where he's not only idealizing, but he's moving into that dangerous territory of idolizing love. A couple of things. So to begin with, he offers seven years' wages for Rachel, which is an enormous amount to pay for a bride, okay? Just imagine, like, your annual salary, okay, times seven, and that's the dowry, that's the, the down payment. You're going to write father-in-law a check, you know, for that amount and say, you know, here, I love your daughter this X amount of dollars. You know, here, here you go, right? Now, uh, for, for some of us, we hear that and we might think, that is so romantic, Right? I wish that you would treat me that with a couple of elbows in the rib, you know. Would you pay that much for me? You know, like there, there's this part of us that's like, well, man, that seems so sweet and so romantic. And I guess on some level, maybe it is, all right? But listen, again, remember Keller says, hey, a counterfeit God, we're mindful of that if, if it begins to exceed the proper boundaries in our lives. That amount that Jacob is willing to pay is four times the amount, four times the going rate for a bride in the ancient world. Does that give us some sort of indication of what's going on in in Jacob's heart? I think it's fair to say that at least his love, his desire for Rachel has exceeded ordinary, normal boundaries, okay? And then there's there's this. At the completion of those seven years' time, uh, the very next verse that you see there in verse 21 uh, let's just put it this way, it's not the kind of thing that you're going to read on a Hallmark card, okay? Look at it again. So verse 20, he served seven years to get Rachel. They seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. We feel like that's all sweet and nice and everything. But then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. Okay, so uh, Hebrew, one Hebrew scholar notes that, um, that this, for the ancient world, this is unusually graphic language. In, in a culture like ours, uh, you know, this sexually saturated culture, and, and just the, the level of dialogue oftentimes is, it can be fairly vulgar in the world. This, this may not be very offensive to, to modern ears, but go in the ancient world, this kind of, spe- this kind of language would have, been, would have been really graphic. And I guess, you know, for us, okay, what would be the, the parallel? Can, can you imagine? I mean, just, just imagine a, a groom on his wedding day saying to his father-in-law-to-be, uh, hey, where's your daughter? You know, like, again, we, we, we sort of get, like, what's, what's happening here in Jacob's heart here. Again, he's, he's consumed with yearning and desire and that it's emotional desire and it's sexual desire and again a lot of that can be really good really healthy that god creates marriage you know to kind of meet those needs but but the point here i just want to make is when do we know when we're we're, we're crossing over from this you know idealized love that that feels good and gives us the warm fuzzies to moving then dangerously into that territory where love becomes idolized 
It's a subtle move. It happens kind of seamlessly. That transition from idealization to idolization, particularly with love, can happen really sort of seamlessly. We need to be on guard against that. I feel for Jacob. I really do. You just think about what's going on in his life at this moment. His life is just empty, man. He, there's like, look at what's going on in Jacob's life. Uh, he has no land, number one. I mean, that's the huge thing in the ancient world. He has no land, so he, 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 doesn't, he can't work. He doesn't own anything. He has to work for his father-in-law. So that's, you know, strike one. His brother back home wants to kill him. That's not great. Uh, he never had his father's approval. He never had his father's blessing. He knew he wasn't the favorite son. Imagine living with that. Then, on top of that, the one person in the world who cares for him, the one person who really loved him is his mother, and he's miles away from her because his brother wants to kill him. And so he's out here all alone, and, he, and lo and behold, he sees the most beautiful woman he's ever met. And he thinks, if I could just have her in my life, things would be so much better. If I could just have her in my life, she would make me whole. She would heal me. She would complete me. And so I feel for, for Jacob. He's medicating through a relationship. He's using a relationship to medicate. And I bet there are people in this room who do the same thing. Ernest Becker is a Pulitzer Prize winning anthropologist. And, and his language for this, he calls it apocalyptic romance. He says, this is when we look to sex and romantic love to give us the transcendence and the sense of meaning and purpose that we should derive from our relationship with God. This is what Becker says. He says, when this happens, the love partner, our husband, wife, whatever, uh, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All of our spiritual and moral needs now become focused on one individual he says, in a word, the love object becomes God, becomes God in our lives. So when we do this, when we idolize love, the love object, so the person you love the most, becomes, in essence, he says, God. He says, that's exactly what Jacob is doing, and that's exactly what, according to Becker, millions of us do on a daily basis. So again, just look at our culture in our culture, we use this kind of language. We use the language of soulmate, right? The language of whether or not he or she is the one. We use the language of happily ever after to propagate the myth of apocalyptic romance. That if I could just find the one person, then everything else would fall into place. Because all you need is love. Because if I could just find the one, the one soulmate, then everything else would kind of drift away. And, and I would experience healing. And I would experience wholeness. And I'm looking to that person, I'm looking to that individual to fulfill every dream and every desire and everything I've ever wanted is so bound up in that relationship that it becomes identity forming for me. And that is where the counterfeit God lives because I'm telling you, love is not all you need. At least not human love. So if I could say anything today uh, for you to consider, it would, be, it would be this, okay? It would be that no one is qualified for this role. The, the love object becoming God. No human, no one is qualified for that role. No husband, no wife, no girlfriend, no boyfriend, no human relationship is qualified for that role only God is qualified to be God 
in your life. Now you may think like, again, like I'm not bowing down and worshiping the person that I'm dating, but, but how, how important is that relationship to you and to your identity? And are you lost without them? If so, I'm just asking you to consider whether or not you might have crossed over from idealizing love into idolizing love. So for some of you, you might be dating somebody right now, and you're in that warm, fuzzy, puppy dog stage of the relationship, okay? If so, awesome, great for you. you get, you're in that you complete me, you know, stage of your life, and so you, you're holding up your heart here, and you're saying, like, I love you, you know, and you're, you're like, writing poems to each other, and, you know, singing songs, or whatever it is you're doing, you're, like, you, the you complete me kind of stage of life. If that's, like, where you find yourself right now, that's, that's fine, that's fantastic, that's a great stage of life to be in. Here's the thing, how do you know? When you transition from you complete me into you define me and all the unhealthy, toxic kinds of things that go along with binding your relationship up so much with somebody that you're dating. I'm not accusing you of it. I'm just saying, how do you know? Do you have a litmus test? Do you have people in your life who can tell you, like, you are really making this relationship, like, too big of a deal? Are you, some, are you in somebody's life saying those words? I'm just asking the question, how, how do you know? So if that's the stage of life you find yourself in, that's fantastic. How can you be on guard against creating a counterfeit God in, in your life, okay? So, so that may be, for, you know, for some of us, a lot of us here, let's be honest, a lot of us in this room are married, and a lot of us in this room have been married for a while now, okay? Some of you have been married longer than I've been alive, okay? So like, you need to be the one up here talking about some of this probably, you know? But uh, it may be that because of the stage of life you're in right now, you may not be in, in the, the, the you-complete-me stage of life anymore, right? For some of you, you're like, I can't even remember the last time I said you-complete-me. I couldn't even say that with a straight face if I turned to my husband or wife, you know? Like, we're in the did-you-pay-the-bills-and-will-you-take-the-trash-out stage of life, you know? Get out of here with you-complete-me, man. What in the world? Everybody, so there's a lot of us here who are kind of like, yeah, I, mean, I remember those days, but... Um, but, but listen to me, if, if that's where you are, okay, if that's where you are, I guarantee you today, the wedding vows that you made all those years ago, and all the miles that have gone between that day and today, I guarantee you, your vows mean more to you today than they did back when you said them. And you may not be all ooey-gooey and ah, you complete me, all that kind of thing, like all the time, okay? But I guarantee you that that relationship means more to you now than it ever has, and that's where the danger lies because Satan will take a good thing and he will pervert it and corrupt it and twist it and try and get it to become an ultimate thing, the, the, the space that should only be reserved for God. Satan will take anything he can take and put it there. And for some of us, the way that Satan gets to us is by causing us to focus so much on the one person we love the most. And I'm telling you, I'm preaching to myself because this is a hard one. It's tough because we're wired to love and to receive love in return. But there are some places in our hearts that should only be reserved for the Lord God. If you're in a relationship with somebody, or you're married to somebody, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt they love God more than they love you, consider yourself blessed. Consider yourself blessed. So the point Let's don't put this on, don't put that burden on our loved ones, right? Let's don't heap all of this on our loved ones. As Becker says, no human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood. So here's the point. Don't put that expectation on your loved one 
Don't put that expectation on, on somebody, an expectation that only God can fulfill. So only God deserves that kind of expectation because only God can deliver on that kind of expectation, right? Only God deserves that expectation because he's the only one that can truly deliver on that. Jacob was looking to Rachel to be a savior of sorts in his life. And when we put those kinds of God-sized expectations on any human being, we are bound for disillusionment and disappointment. And that's exactly what happens in Jacob's life. On the evening of the wedding feast, Laban pulls a, a switcheroo on Jacob. It says in the Bible that, that he sent Leah into the bedroom rather than Rachel. And the text summarizes the whole thing really succinctly. Genesis 29, verse 25. When morning came, there was Leah. Why does Laban do this? Why does he do it to Leah? Why does he do it to Rachel? Why does he do it to Jacob? Well, again, we're back to Leah and her weak eyes. Uh, because of those weak eyes, Laban knew that no man was ever going to show up and, and, and court his oldest daughter. It's telling that in those seven years, seven years that Jacob is working for Rachel, there's, there's nobody knocking on Leah's door. <laughs> there's nobody asking for her phone number, you know. It, the only way dad can pass her off is to swindle Jacob into taking her off his hands. Keller refers to Leah as the girl nobody wanted. She was the daughter whom her father didn't want, and now she's the wife her husband didn't want. It says, one of the most heartbreaking places, Genesis 29, verse 30, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. The Bible shows us that Leah had a void in her heart, much like Jacob did, much like you and me. And she tried to fill it in the same way that Jacob did. She tried to fill it by, by, by winning the love of her husband. Imagine how Leah had longed for that. You know, someday maybe somebody will, will, will come and, and they'll look past this and they'll see what's in here. And they'll love me for who I really am. And, and, then, and then the man that she ends up married to is in love with her younger sister. She did what Jacob had done to Rachel. She did what Isaac had done to Esau. She set her heart on winning the love of another person. I want you to see this next set of verses. Genesis 29, starting in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again when she gave birth to a son. She said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. And again she conceived when she gave birth to a son. She said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Leah set all her hopes and dreams on her husband, on winning his love. And she thought, if I could just bear him sons, maybe I'll win his love. She said, you know, Jacob has no problem inviting me into his bed. But maybe, maybe if I just continue to, to produce for him, maybe he'll let me into his heart. And these are some of the most heartbreaking passages that I know of in the Bible 
Because this woman, time after time after time, she's trying to win the love of this man who doesn't want to love her. He's not interested in loving her. He's not interested in the love that she's trying to give back. And she keeps bowing down before that counterfeit God, only to have battered and bloodied and bruised knees and a bruised soul just over and over again. She keeps going there. And I want you to listen to what, to what she names these children again. Because in the ancient world, it was a father's prerogative, a father's right to name the sons, to name the kids, especially the sons. But you get the picture that after the nine months, after those kids are born, Jacob doesn't want to have anything to do with them because he has nothing to do with even naming them. He would just assume that they don't even exist because he doesn't care about them and he doesn't care about her because he's so infatuated with Rachel. But look at what these names mean. Reuben means to see, and so when she names Reuben, she's the one who names him. Leah is saying, God has seen my affliction. Now perhaps my husband will see me. Heartbreaking. Simeon, boy number two, means to hear. And in naming Simeon, Leah is saying, God has heard that I'm unloved. Now maybe my husband will hear me. Baby number three, Levi, means to be attached. And she says, now finally, look, three children. I can't even hold them all. He has to hold one. He has to be attached to one. Maybe he'll be attached to me as well. And then when she's pregnant the fourth time. (laughs) It may take her a while to learn her lesson, but she finally does. And she's the only one in this whole sorry story to make any progress at all. Because she finally, with the birth of this fourth son, Judah means to praise You know what she says? In the naming of this son, in the naming of Judah, she's saying, I will praise the Lord. And I love that little bit of defiance in her voice. She's like, I'm done with Jacob. No more mention of him. This one's from God. And finally, she gets it. The light bulb goes off. She realizes the love that she'd been looking for her whole life. Jacob wasn't going to give it to her. And on top of that, he's incapable of giving it to her because the only way she could really be loved well was to be loved by her creator, God. And if you love an underdog story, you need to know this because all of salvation history hinges upon this. The moment she topples over that counterfeit God of love and romance and apocalyptic romance in her heart and in her life, the moment she she just tears that idol down and receives the love that God has for her, that's when she has this son, Judah, and it is through him that Jesus Christ enters the world. Just think about that for a minute. Salvation doesn't come through beauty queen Rachel. Salvation comes through unloved, unwanted, cross-eyed Leah. And that is just like our God to do that. And the God of all creation looks at someone like Leah and her heartbrokenness and her pain. And he says, come here, sweetie. I will love you in the way that you truly deserve. The Psalms say the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and I can just see him binding up Leah, wrapping him in his arms, and loving her tightly, loving her well. And today, if you're here, and you've never experienced the love of that same creator, God, who fashioned you in your mother's womb all those years ago, I pray today that you would just give in to that love. I pray today that you would just tear down whatever counterfeit God might be in your life. There may be some sort of relationship that has taken on ultimate significance in your life. If so, let's heed the example of Leah. 
Let's be the one who tears down the counterfeit God of our age and embraces the enduring eternal love of our creator God, the one who sent his only begotten son into the world that whoever believes in him would not perish, but say it with me, but have everlasting life. That is the degree to which your God loves you. That's real love. If you need to respond to it today, I hope you'll do so. Let's stand and sing our song together.